Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, we are going to talk about the Liberal NDP budget deal and the this mass unionization wave that is occurring in the United States and what uh, we can learn about that in Canada. Uh, we wanted to do to discuss the, the the latest budget, which happened two weeks ago, we dropped two weeks ago. Uh, this this is a Liberal NDP, the first budget of this Liberal NDP deal. Uh, we wanted to discuss it last week. Unfortunately, though, I got COVID. Uh, I'm actually quite pissed off. It's not surprising that I got COVID. Many people are getting COVID. The government, the the capitalists, these uh, trying to be nice here, but these bastards uh, don't care about us, and they're removing uh, any any measures that that helped remotely. So they're just letting it rip in through the population. Anyway, I was uh, bedridden for a while and unable to do the show. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> back at it, uh, back uh, recovered. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get back on uh, on with the show this week, and we will yes, as I mentioned, we will be discussing. We'll start with the budget. Uh, I have Alex Grant here with me. Uh, again, who has been uh, following following this and will tell us a lot about what is in the budget, also what is not in the budget, um, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk about the this inspiring uh, unionization wave in America uh, after. Um, but yeah, Alex, uh, good to have you back on the show. Um, there's a number of things in the budget. Maybe I'll just like ask you about them, and you can specifically comment. Uh, and then we can talk generally about what this means and if it's good, if it's bad, what are the NDP getting out of this? Are they, you know, selling their soul as we described previously? Um, the big question that we raised when we talked about this previously was uh, the military spending. Now, I know Jagmeet and Justin Trudeau tried to kind of dance around the question. Uh, what is in the budget in terms of uh, increased spending on for the military, for Canadian imperialism? Hey, Joel. Well, first of all, great to hear you're feeling better. And uh, we're back at it. And yeah, I, I did a bunch of analysis of the budget. And the actual budget document is huge. Um, so I sort of skimmed through that, read a bunch of uh, journalistic pieces. I have to admit, it was a difficult time. I, I had a really hard time finding exactly what was in the budget, especially from the, the usual left-wing sources like the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives or the Broadbent Institute or the unions, because usually they would just lay into the budget. They would pick it apart in detail, explain exactly what was wrong with it. So one of the extreme problems with the NDP liberal budget deal is the neutering of the soft left in that they've completely pulled back their criticism and it has no numbers but the article from the CCPA say I think it's titled something vague like this won't cause panic in the in the country club and uh, but the actual analysis is devoid of numbers and devoid of teeth and so us Marxists are going to have to provide the teeth. Well, we're okay with that. But it means we're going to have to do a bit more work for it. And, and yes, military. We highlighted that uh, this budget deal was going to contain billions for military. There was a big push by NATO, the NATO powers for Canada to reach uh, 2% of GDP 
in terms of military expenditure, imperialist military expenditure. They don't buy these tanks and these guns and these planes just for fun. They do so to support imperialist investment overseas, support that exploitation of workers around the world, of poor people around the world. And yes, this budget contains $8 billion of increased military expenditure. Um, and that compares with the, the, the thing that the NDP was sort of saying, oh, this is what we achieved. They got $5 billion for child dentistry. So for every, every buck given to kids, it was $1.60 given to, to generals and imperialists, right? So that is the balance of forces in this budget, $8 billion. In fact, the, the warmongers were unhappy about that because uh, they were saying, sort of, oh, no, no, it needs to be even more. It needs to be $20 billion, uh, $25 billion. And, uh, but any increase is uh, bad. It's any increase that should be fought. And again, also, a number of people on the left have pointed this out, that the budget deal has weakened the anti-war movement, right? If there was a credi credible anti-NATO, anti-imperialist, anti-war movement, this budget deal would be a dead letter for the NDP to sign off on. But sadly, the, the anti-war movement is, is quite weak and the NDP is uh, weakening it. And, uh, and we, we have to fight this and, and call it out for, for what it is because we, we cannot be supporting imperialism. Okay, yeah, so $8 billion for the military, not good, not surprising. Uh, and the NDP are supporting this. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the NDP saying, hey, this is fine. Okay. Um, but, I mean, I imagine their argument is probably something around, well, there's not much you can do about that. Or are they, like, I know they had a strange article about fighter jets where they were, like, criticizing the government for not not having good enough fighter jets, which is a strange argument, strange argument for the left. Normally the, the left should be saying we're opposed to military spending. We're opposed to war. We're opposed to imperialism. Um, we don't support Canadian imperialism uh, around the world and we don't support increased military spending, but it seems as though in order to justify the support of the government, they're going to all sorts of lengths and using all sorts of vague language with regards to it. But it really is uh it's defending killing people around the world. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, is do you have any more detail on the dentistry plan? Like, I imagine they're just that's the, that is the thing that people are like, yay, it was worth it for this, I suppose. Um, I mean, five billion dollars. Have they just been vague about it so far? Well, that's the only concrete thing. It's the only concrete thing. It, it's it's five billion dollars over five years. I think it's only something like. 200 or 300 million dollars this year and and we detailed that when we talked about the the uh, the initial deal the podcast we did on that so it is for uh, families with incomes less than 90,000 so it's not universal and it's for under 12s and uh, and so it's and, and it yeah it's, it's very partial, and, and the reality is many provinces already have this. And there's an extreme likelihood the Liberals were going to do this anyway. So the NDP have sold out for something that was going to happen anyway. And if you compare it to everything else in the budget, the military expenditure, there's an environmental uh, crisis in the budget, oil and gas subsidies. Yeah, what is this? Uh, it's carbon capture, right? There's a few yes. billion dollars for that. You want to explain what this is? Because I'm sure yeah. that would be confusing for some people on the left as well. They think it's some sort of environmental thing. Yes, yes. So yes, the, the, the budget is all smoke and mirrors, uh, but it's smoke from leaky pipelines, right? So uh, the, the liberals are experts at presenting terrible things as if they're wonderful, you know, polishing a turd. And uh, they can polish up a turd really shiny. And uh, for this one, yes, there is two and a half billion dollars for carbon capture and storage. Isn't that great? We can stop the, the climate disaster because of climate capture and storage. 
Well, in fact, this is exactly the opposite. First of all, this is a technology that does not work. Does not work. Uh, actually, I'll tell you a carbon capture and storage device. It's called a tree. And, but the, uh, the, the so-called technology hasn't worked. This, but this money goes right into the pockets of the oil and gas corporations. It allows them to continue to pollute. So it so allows them to continue to expand uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. So the hope of Canada reaching the emissions target, it's, it's fantasy land. The liberals aren't even trying, right? As, and it actually explicitly breaks the, the NDP liberal deal. So the, the, the military is kind of, the military expenditure is fudging the NDP deal, but the oil subsidies is explicitly violating. On, on the basis of that, the NDP vote no. They didn't vote no, uh, they voted yes. And because it says there, end oil and gas subsidies. And not only did they not end oil and gas subsidies, they provided two and a half billion dollars more in carbon capture and uh, 1.5 billion dollars to support critical mineral exploration. So more mining, which, which has, which typically violates indigenous rights and causes massive pollution, mass, uh, and both in terms of uh, uh, carbon dioxide, but also in terms of tailings ponds and the, the specific pollution of uh, those environments. Uh, also, Bay de Nord, people in Quebec have been very upset about Bay de Nord, uh, a massive sort of oil and gas uh, exploration endeavor in northern Quebec. So this is a disaster for the environment. On that basis alone, the NDP should vote no, total betrayal. Okay, well, yeah, that's not good. It's not just the military. There's a whole bunch of nice, horrible things, which is pretty much standard for the liberal. The liberals presenting horrible things as nice things when they're not. <clears throat> okay, but what about a big question that a lot of people are talking about these days? Um, it's, it is important for me personally as a renter, <laughs> um, and it is important for millions and millions of working class Canadians, housing. Obviously, the housing bubble uh, burst in America, uh, that was the subprime Morgan crisis, and it never burst in Canada yet. <laughs> it's just inflated, and housing prices have gone through the roof. Uh, rent, uh, rent has gone through the roof. It is eating away at a greater and greater portion of your income. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, they made a bunch of noise about housing in the budget. Uh, but what, yeah, what is in the budget? Is this a housing budget? Is this a budget that is going to help people pay their rent? And maybe, maybe a working class family, maybe it'll help them buy a house. Well, it is a housing budget in terms of one of the biggest ticket items in the budget is $10 billion for housing. And it is a housing budget, but where's that money going to go? Is it going to go to working class renters? Hell no. It's overwhelmingly that $10 billion is going to go to housing speculators, to property developers, to the big builders, the, uh, who overwhelmingly give massive political donations to right-wing forces. In fact, a lot of them were giving large donations to the convoy and far-right forces. Uh, actually, I remember when the, was it the fascist Faith Goldie came third in the Toronto mayoral race, she got a lot of money from these developers, right? So the Liberals are fun funneling $10 billion uh, to them. As part of that 10 billion, there is a 4 billion housing accelerator fund that is supposedly going to build 100,000 houses. They've, they've absolutely no way of knowing that it will build 100,000 houses. But there's this myth that the high housing costs, I, th I think actually in Canada, the cost of housing has gone up like 40% in the last two years, more than 40% in the last two years. It's insane. Uh, people cannot afford it. The average house is over a million dollars. So there's, but there's this myth put out that there's not enough supply. In fact, supply has been going up way faster than population, but the prices are still going up. 
but what what it, what do these handouts to developers do? Well, you give them land grants, you give them incentives, you cut red tape. Anybody on the left should know that cut red tape is a shorthand for corporate handouts and cuts in regulations that uh, help uh, workers in the environment and local communities. Um, anyway, so what it does, it gives them these uh, incentives, tax cuts, land grants, etc. And out of that, they're supposed to build housing. They don't always. Sometimes they just sit on the land and let it speculate. But other they're supposed to build affordable housing. Lots of talk about affordable housing, not public housing or social housing, but affordable housing. Whenever any politician uses the word affordable housing, and I may add, it's not just liberal politicians, it's also the NDP, provincial and federal, affordable housing is a con. Remember that. Whenever any politician says affordable housing, you should throw stuff at them. It's a con. Affordable housing is housing that is 20% discount from market rates. But all of the incentives serves to push up the market rates more than 20%. So the affordable housing ends up being approximately the same or slightly higher than present rents. And the market rent just goes up and up and up and up. The market price goes up and up. So that's uh, what that $10 billion is instead of uh, actually helping build uh, public housing, social housing, which would actually solve the problem. Um, th th there's, there's a few other things in there. So maybe I'll put, yeah, sort of, Joel, if you wanted to come in. Okay. And yeah, that helps to explain that this is, this is a, the house, the 10 billion for housing is a gift to developers, yeah. big billionaire developers that, um, well, there's no other way to put it. I think there's a hell of a lot of speculation. It's a gift to, <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of speculation in the market. There's a, there's a heck of a lot. Like if, if the supply is growing faster than the population, what the hell is going on? Um, so with this in mind, does, you mentioned things, measures that are pushing up the price, price of houses. So the affordable housing thing, if it's 20% less than the market rate, but the market rate goes up, then it's not anything. It's not a gain. But then is the budget doing anything to counter speculation? I guess, I don't know, that's the next question because, you know, there's different demands coming from the left to like cap rent and like tax uh, speculators or something, you know, sometimes does this, <clears throat> which obviously are are only half measures and a lot of them don't work. Um, but yeah, what this is a liberal NDP budget. Does it do anything to counter speculation? Because if you don't, if you don't attack speculation, it's, this is all like kind of meaningless. I find <laughs> that the, the, the rent, it's just going to keep going up. People, housing is going to become increasingly unaffordable. You already have a phenomenon of they're just being too many apartments and condos and homes and they're empty. So the problem, as you stated, is not supply. Um, so then how are we going to tackle speculation? Does this budget do anything with that regard in that regard? Well, you know, when my son was a baby and he was going to grab something dangerous, I used to jingle my keys in front of him and distract him to sort of uh, go after the, the, the harmless thing. And the Liberals are also very good at jiggling keys. So they announced uh, two things that are supposed to you know, end speculation. They'll do nothing. But uh, it got a lot of media play. One, they're banning foreign investment, foreign speculation, supposedly, in Canadian housing. Although there's, there's a ton of caveats to that, so they could get round of it. But even then... Foreign investment in Canadian housing, it's, it's only 3% of the market. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. When, in fact, uh, speculation, in, you know, investment properties in Canada over the last couple of decades has gone up from about 15% of the market to 25%. So there's a massive increase in speculation. And, and there's been a correspondent decrease in first-time buyers. So first-time buyers have been pushed out of the market. Speculators have come in. That pushes up all the prices, pushes up both the price of housing and the price of rent. 
it does all of that. So banning foreign buyers does nothing. It's it ends up also occasion you know, being racist. Uh, so blame blame the Chinese. I think that, that's when they put it in British Columbia. Uh, that, I think they put that in. What was it? Three four years ago, something like that. The NDP yeah, a number of years ago. ago. Yeah. Yeah, and and that had a strong sort of like anti-Chinese xenophobic element, and uh, and and absolutely no effect on the market. I think it, it caused a three-month blip in the market. Uh, so it did, it did practically nothing. And then the other thing is they've uh, banned flipping, house flipping. So you buy a house and then you resell it. You have to keep hold of that house for 12 months, which it's, again, house flipping, you typically do renovations and stuff. And you know, there's these uh, TV shows about flip this house. 12 months is not a barrier to that at all at all so th there's just like small jokes uh oh, there's another slight sort of jingling of keys and that for low-income people who get the housing benefit are uh, at an unspecified date going to get 500 a 500 check to supposedly help you with your rent and that's just a one-off payment so that is basically Whenever the liberals are in trouble, they will roll this out to distract everybody. And of course, okay, $500, better than not having $500, but compared with the billions and billions of dollars given to uh, the property developers, it's utterly nothing. It's just a political gimmick. Uh, and, and it's not consistent annual funding and support or anything like that. It's just a one-off payment. Now, the last thing that actually got a lot of media was this tax-free savings account to save up for a down payment. And again, this is, ends up being quite a lot of money. So what this is, this is a combination of an RRSP and a tax-free savings account. So for the listeners, especially the young listeners who... Uh, whose retirement plan is the communist revolution. Uh, you probably don't know much about an RSP, uh, but what this is, it's a bank account, which is tax deductible when you put money in and it's tax free when you take money out. Uh, you can put in $8,000 a year up to a maximum of $40,000 to save up for your down payment. But, because we know that all of our listeners, all of our young listeners especially, are just sitting on $8,000 every year just to, just to put in a, a savings account. Yeah, yeah, that, that's our listenership, isn't it? Yeah, we looked at the demographics, just sitting on eight grand every year. No, no, th this is overwhelmingly goes to, to wealthy people and it's going to do nothing to lower housing costs. That $40,000 down payment, that's just going to be added onto the top of the cost of housing. So it's going to increase housing inflation, not decrease it. There's nothing here for renters. There's, and, and in fact, yeah, inflation numbers just came out yesterday. It was 6.7% inflation. This is doing absolutely nothing for that. It's actually going to make it worse. Right. Well, we'll talk about inflation a bit later. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, okay. So that's, I guess that kind of gets into the thing about ta taxes um, a lot of people during the pandemic, there's been, we saw the polls, there's a big increase in popularity for like a, a wealth tax um, because all people aren't stupid. A lot of people lost their jobs. There's a big hardship during the pandemic. However, everyone's seen the billionaires, the, the rich have increased their profits massively during the pandemic. There's many examples of this. We all probably know them. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I mean, there was a bit of talk about this. Is there, uh, you know, uh, isn't there some changes in this budget? Isn't there a tax on wealth? Uh, <clears throat> is, is, isn't that worth the support <laughs> the NDP is giving or something like that? Maybe, do you have a little information on this, uh, the tax changes that are being put in in the budget? Yeah, incredibly minor, incredibly minor. Um, that the ND, actually the, the Liberals actually backtracked on their election promises, right? It's not that the NDP got more out of them. They, the... The Liberals didn't commit more than their election. They actually cut it in half what they promised in the election. So the 
the Liberals promised to increase to have a uh, increase the top rate of corporate tax by three percent, and instead they increased it by one point five percent. But they only increased it for banks earning more than a billion dollars. So they're actually excluding about eighty percent of the pandemic profiteers. Banks are about 20% of the pandemic profiteers. So 1.5% increase in the top corporate tax rate for banks and a pandemic super profit tax of, of 15%, but then again, only for the banks above a billion dollars, excluding 80%. So this is a step back from what just the liberal platform was, let alone what the NDP platform was. And then if you look at the total monetary amount, this is going to raise about $6 billion, supposedly, over five years. So it's not even $6 billion a year. So it's $6 billion over five years, just slightly over $1 billion every year. And uh, this compares, so we did the statistics on this. Last year, corporate profits went up by almost $500 billion in Canada, right? So they've racked up $500 billion in one year, and they're going to ha have to spend just over $1 billion a year more. It's a joke. It's a joke. What, what is that? It's, 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 it's not even one, you know, it's like, it's like a quarter of 1% or something, I, yeah. Uh, it's just peanuts, total peanuts. And this is what the NDP sold out for. Right. Yeah. It's like they're stealing, they're stealing everything and then giving a tiny fraction of it back. Uh, so yeah, we shouldn't be fooled by this budget. I think the takeaway here is about, it's like a balancing act. The, the liberals are trying and the NDP are <clears throat> the NDP leadership is aiding them in trying to maintain support in 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 showing that they're doing something good um while still carrying out what canadian capitalism needs and wants so they're trying to do this it's a typical thing that liberals do it's uh it's a bend or present themselves in a way that will get votes while uh, simultaneously carrying out the the program of Canadian capitalism, um, <clears throat> which yeah you've outlined very well. So yeah, we should have absolutely no support for this budget. It's incorrect for the NDP to support this. They're selling themselves for almost nothing, uh, especially considering the context that we're living in, which you described: massive corporate profiteering, <laughs> uh, increased military expending. Um, yeah, this situation it's. Not good. Um, there is another thing. Just one final thing about the budget, uh, because when we first talked about it, was first announced, there was noise about pharmacare. I won't say <laughs> a clear commitment, because the liberals have been talking about this for decades, and they still have not made a clear commitment about pharmacare. But yeah, was there anything about pharmacare in this budget? No. Don't be silly, Richard. No. Yeah. <laughs> of course not. Of I just, just had to be fair, just had to be fair to them. You know? I'm, I'm sorry, the Liberals have been promising this for 30 years. Of course, there's nothing in the budget about it. And 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 it's, you know, supposedly they were do, going to do something about it for the NDP Liberal deal. No, there's nothing. There's a, actually, no, actually, I, I, I'm wrong. There's not nothing. Uh, there was news came out this morning. They're actually going backwards and things are getting worse. So they made a promise in 2015 that they were going to regulate the prices of uh, the pharmaceutical corporations and, uh, and make them reveal their profit margins, open the books to a certain degree. And, uh, and today they announced they're going to backtrack on that and, and, and not make the pharmaceutical companies uh, limit their prices at all. So this does not herald well for a new pharmacare plan at all. Right. And, and this, again, this is what the NDP has signed off on. Yeah, a, a, a few things that um, we missed out that uh, there's actually tax cuts, good progressive tax cuts that uh, 
there's a tax cut for medium-sized businesses that the small business tax rate is going from uh, is going to uh, be boosted up from corporations earning fifteen million dollars to corporations earning fifty million dollars. So medium-sized corporations between fifteen and fifty million dollars they they get the lower small business tax rate. So good progressive uh, NDP measure of supporting businesses and eroding uh, finances to, to, to fund things that people need. And the other thing, yes, in the housing, that again, it was $10 billion of handouts for uh, these speculators and developers, whereas what really needs to happen to solve the crisis is public housing, social housing. That is what is needed. Again, you know, we said throw, throw things at politicians who say affordable housing, especially when it's NDP politicians, say we need public and social housing. That has got to be the mantra of the movement because what that does is provides people with cheaper housing, cheaper rents that they can live in, and then also takes those people out of the private market. It's not about not enough supply. It's about, you know, it reduces the demand. And then by taking people into public housing, removes the pressure on the private market, it actually lowers the rents in the private market too. So that is the solution. Anything that doesn't talk about public and social should be immediately rejected. Yeah, it's really the we as as socialists if we are socialists we need to we need to develop policies that attack the market actually that are against the market that are and that's what that is public housing so talking about affordable housing was basing yourself on the market is a joke it's a joke it doesn't work the history has shown that and yeah we need to fight for uh for public housing for social housing um yeah okay i don't know we've talked a lot about the budget here i hope i think we got the message across it's not a good budget it is it is what would be expected, and this should not be supported by the labor movement. And it is unfortunate that it seems like, uh, yeah, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the Broadbent Institute, sort of like left reformist NDP types are uh, not doing their job in analyzing this. They're sort of trying to show, trying to not show what is actually going on, which is in a sense a defense of the NDP bureaucracy, which uh, anyway, it's our duty to lay bare the facts. So I hope that we did that here today, <clears throat> but we will, uh, yeah, we will follow this. There's going to be another three budgets, I believe that the NDP uh, have signed on to with the liberals. Um, I don't know, maybe there's a miraculous pharmacare plan that appears out of nowhere in one of these budgets. And we highly doubt that. Um, but yeah, we have to be able to explain this, right? <clears throat> in the movement of what, what, is in the, what is in these budgets and why it's wrong. We have to be able to, to talk about that. Um, but yeah, so this is the parliamentary struggle. Not so good. <laughs> Not going so well in Canada uh, with the NDP uh, and the parliament. And the parliament. Um, but yeah, it's not all uh, bad. Uh, so I think we'll spend the rest of the show talking about this really inspiring unionization wave in the U.S. Um, before I get into that, though, I did want to take a short break. Um, yeah, as we said, uh, we started doing this a few weeks ago. I think, uh, uh, yeah, and I think we'll continue to do it, is we're going to read out our subscribers. So Fightback Magazine, you're listening to uh, our podcast uh, we, we put out a magazine. It's every two weeks. We've moved up just last fall from the mo a monthly publication to a fortnightly a publication every two weeks. Uh, and we're expanding our subscriber base. And it's actually, I think it's accelerating. The number of people getting subscriptions is is increasing. And and we would like to just read everybody out, everybody's name and thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you, comrades and supporters and encourage people to also get your subscription to Fight Back Magazine. You will have... Uh, hard-hitting Marxist analysis delivered right to your door and to your email. Uh, there's multiple options online. Uh, yeah, if you go to marxist.ca, you can get your subscription. Um, our subscribers over the past week, since basically since last Thursday, is Robert, uh, Dikra, James, Emily, Tara, Leah, uh, Ethan, Madeline, uh, Zila, Caleb, 
Merlar, James, Ariel, uh, Justin, Holly, Jacob, Iman, Drake, Alyssa. Uh, and we have three Solidarity subscribers, which we highly encourage uh, because really we make no money off the paper. I think we lose money if, with a normal subscription, actually. So Solidarity subscription is someone who gives us a monthly amount which actually really helps us to fund uh, our activities. So we have three solidarity subscribers in the last week, Asaf, Julia, and Ben. Big, big thanks to these, uh, these supporters uh, for that. Um, and I highly encourage people to go to marxist.ca, go to the subscribe <clears throat> option, and you can yeah get, a, get out a solid, become a solidarity subscriber with Fightback. So we have those. And then we have also two people, Jordan, and Holly, who have become, uh, who have subscribed to our French paper, La Riposte Socialiste, which you can subscribe to at marxist.qc.ca. I uh, Marxist, which which I highly uh, which I highly recommend as well, because we are not just in English, we are also in French. Um, anyway, that is over twenty people in the past week. I think it's twenty three, twenty four people. So this is very good. If we keep this up, we'll have we'll be over a thousand subscribers in no time. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that. Get your subscription to Fightback Magazine. Go to our website, uh, support building the forces of Marxism uh, in Canada. So yeah, moving on. Uh, yeah, like I said, we talked about the parliamentary struggle. Not so good. But yeah, we have this. I think a lot of people have been following it in Canada. This is inspiring unionize. Something's really happening in America. I think we've been seeing it for a number of years. But really, it's, it's, a, it's a shift in consciousness. I think it's a, it's it's the beginnings of a shift of consciousness. Also, I think we shouldn't think that this is all just one. It's all just something that's that's a, that's occurring within a within a few months or a year. Uh, this is the beginning of an awakening of the working class of America, which we should not uh, downplay, <clears throat> uh, because America is the most powerful capitalist nation on the on the planet. Uh, Karl Marx talked about the importance of the working class. Um, I firmly believe that socialism is not possible unless with, without, it's not possible without the American working class. And what you're starting to see is the American working class uh, coming into its own, becoming, going from a class in itself to a class for itself, being conscious that it is a class and moving to defend its interests collectively. And that is the beginning of the process of working class people fighting for socialism, actually. Um, so this is very progressive what's happening. In I'll, I'll just list a, a, few, a few polls. So <clears throat> there's a poll, actually, this is last year. I'm sure it's probably even better uh, this year. But yeah, last year there was a poll that said 76% of people uh, were were supportive of labor unions. That's 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 a crushing majority of American society that are supportive of labor unions. What 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 portion of American society do you think are supportive of labor unions? <laughs> it's poor working class people. Uh, in that poll, only eleven percent said that they were not. I bet you those are they're capitalists, <laughs> they're Democratic Party and Republican supporters and capitalists that are opposed to unions because they have a material interest to be opposed to unions. Uh, and yeah, in addition, uh, connected to the latest Amazon uh, labor union, uh, the in Staten Island uh, union drive that has went through, and there's another one that's going through uh, soon, or they're voting um, just across uh, the way. Uh, Anyway, 77% of Americans said they supported Amazon Union Drive. Uh, so yeah, I think this is really demonstrating uh, the shift in consciousness in America, which compared with Canada and actually compared with Europe has a super low unionization drive, uh, rate, uh, super low unionization rate. The unionization rate uh, 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 in Canada is, is much, much higher. Uh, so, and, and in many ways, I think that actually helps explain it. The class struggle is raw in America. <laughs> there isn't much in between the capitalists and the workers. Uh, so workers are returning to class struggle methods. Um, and that's, this is why you're seeing this unionization wave. Um, 
So yeah, but I don't want to, I don't want to monopolize the discussion here. I don't know, Alex, if you have anything to say about this, I have a whole bunch more stuff to say about Amazon, there's Starbucks, there's, there's all these other, there's now Apple being unionized, but yeah, I don't know if you want to say something about the general point. It was incredibly inspiring, incredibly inspiring and utterly confirms Marxist ideas, right? How many times have we been told by clever academics, oh, the working class doesn't exist. The working class doesn't exist uh, as uh, somebody is uh, sitting there with his cell phone made by workers in China and delivered by uh, delivery, you know, delivery workers in the United States and Canada and uh, eating food made by uh, food service workers. So workers are everywhere, but these terrible academics would tell us they don't exist. You know, but now we are seeing the real return of the working class. We are not just invisible slaves. We, working class people are people with brains and muscles and want change, deserve and desire and demand to be treated like human beings. And, and that inevitably happens. Now, sadly, it takes longer than we hope till people rise up, but you can only push people down so far until they start rising up. And, and it's very reminiscent of the 1930s, very reminiscent of the 1930s after the Great Depression, where you had a wave of union struggle, initially led by revolutionaries, the Trotskyists in Minneapolis and uh, the uh, Toledo and uh, on the West Coast and the Dockers. So in 1934, led some very militant strikes led by revolutionaries. And then that created the rise of the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, an industrial trade union organization, sort of wall to wall, everybody's part of the union. There was that wave in the auto plants, which everyone said nobody would be able, be able to organize. They put armed guards on the doors. It's entirely analogous to Amazon that uh, and there was that rise of the labor movement which has revolutionary implications in the 1930s now we are seeing a repetition of that in very similar ways yeah exactly i mean i think a lot of the, the these places that are unionizing uh like for example starbucks there yesterday i believe or the day before there was five union elections in virginia that landslide that <laughs> it's a, it's a similar thing it's like 90 to 100 percent of the workers vote for the union um virginia has a 4.8 percent unionization rate it's a notoriously anti-union state it's always republican uh and the labor law is either non-existent or slanted fully on the boss's side uh so the workers have i think realized that they can rely only on their own strength uh, which is a very progressive idea because that is true. We can't rely. I think sometimes there's this idea, oh, I'll, we'll rely on some crafty reformist politician. Let's wait for the Senate to, no, 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 no. <laughs> if they do anything that is remotely in our favor, it is because of our own activity, actually. It's because we scare them. Now, you might see a host of pro-labor legislation come through, uh, but it's because they're scared. <clears throat> um Anyway, yeah, so you've seen this. Uh, there's now 25 Starbucks that have been unionized nationwide. There's another couple hundred that are on the way. And guess what? I think that's just the beginning. Uh, how many of these, how many people in America work in the service sector in places like McDonald's, Starbucks, Burger King, uh, whatever you name it? Uh, millions, right? And these are places, to get back to a point that you mentioned, Alex, that normally were considered you couldn't unionize them. There was all these reasons of why, oh, it's young people. They don't care about the union. They're only there for a summer job, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one, a lot of that's not true, uh, even if there is that element. But young people actually tend to be more open to unions. So I don't see how that would be a, <laughs> a point against unions. Uh, and also a lot of people work in these jobs. I just think of Tim Hortons. Like Tim Hortons is a damn sweatshop in Canada. It's horrible. And it's largely people with families. Um uh, racialized workers, immigrant workers <laughs> that have families to feed, work in almost minimum wage or near minimum wage. Uh, yeah, in a churning out donuts uh, <laughs> and, and crappy coffee. Um, 
I don't want to offend any people who love Tim Hortons, but, <laughs> but you know, no, no, this, this is how many people work in these Tim Hortons. And, and you remember when they, the, the, the win liberals uh, up the minimum wage to $15, there was like a revolt <laughs> of the Tim Hortons owners in Ontario. Uh, yeah, these are bastards. So in many ways, the, there's this huge sector of the working class that's hyper exploited. That's, and I also think that there is nothing in America, there is no mediate, there is no mediating force. Like in, in Virginia, for example, the union bureaucracy is so weak because the unionization is that, that you have the workers realizing that they own, they can fight. They have to fight by their own means. Uh, uh, um, and, and, and really that's, like I said, in the beginning of this, it's like, it's, it's workers coming to their own and realizing that they have to fight as a class. That's it. And this, you couldn't invent something more clearly Marxist, confirming Marx. You couldn't invent it. What do we have? We have uh, poor working class people fighting against the richest capitalists in the history of humanity. Jeff Bezos is the second richest man in the history of humanity over $200 billion net worth. According to Forbes, he's increased his wealth by 67% in the last year alone. Um, the 10 richest men in the world have doubled their wealth during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and these are a lot of these people that own these companies that are completely anti-union. Huh, I wonder why they're anti-union. Is there a relationship between them increasing <laughs> their wealth and their being opposed to unions and mercilessly crushing the workers? Like, like Amazon workers, there's, there's heroic, or there's, there's, sorry, not heroic, horrific stories of them not having pee breaks and, having, and peeing in bottles. Even the Amazon management admitted that that was a thing. So this is well, the they, situation. They posters saying, please don't leave your pee bottles lying around. Yeah, after exactly. they denied that pee bottles existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is really the situation. It's the, the capitalism. This is what capitalism does <laughs> to people. And, the, it, and it also, as Mark said, creates its own grave diggers. And that's what you're starting to see. And yeah, this this wave of unionization, uh, this unionization drive, I think, is uh, uh, is really in, for people in Canada. It's inspiring, right? Uh, we have. I also think there's another thing to, to mention, and and this is maybe getting in, a bit into like what can we learn in Canada? I think a lot of people are seeing this in Canada. You know, there's Canada is uh, uh, quite often things happen in America, and they have political. Uh, repercussions. People watch this and like you know, a lot of people saw the Bernie Sanders campaign and were inspired and, and that made a lot of young Canadians interested in socialism. Uh, and now I think a lot of young workers, probably a lot of people that are working in a Tim Hortons or a, a, yeah, some crappy coffee shop or, or fast food chain in Canada are probably looking at that and going, maybe we should do that. Uh, and I uh, look, mark my words, it's only a matter of time. This is going to come to Canada eventually. Um, but one thing, then I think it's into the lessons of like, what can we learn from this? And on that, I think the, there's, there's uh, the overwhelming thing that I see from these campaigns in the U.S. is the grassroots nature of it, the rank and file activity of the workers involved. Uh, that's the power behind it. Um, even going back to the Amazon one, like Chris Smalls was fired for in 2020 for organizing a walkout against in, inadequate COVID pandemic measures. Uh, and, and he's dedicated his life, it seems, to fight back against these bastards and, or, and organize the workers. It seems to be a grassroots workers campaign. And that's the, the strength of that. We, we already talked previously about the kind of in Canada, there's the Teamsters tried to organize an Amazon uh, plant in Alberta and failed. It seemed there was an article in Jacobin magazine describing how there were pretty much no workers involved in that campaign. Uh, it was a top-down, parachuted-in union organizer, which which allowed Amazon to play it off as that, and there was an element of truth. Whereas, and and this leads to something: the overwhelming thing that helps build union unionization is political. I think a lot of union organizers think is it thinks it's organizational. It's not organizational. The politics, for example, after the Amazon union drive went through, they've said they've been contacted by 
dozens and dozens of hundreds and hundreds of workers in in a few hundred Amazon factory or uh, warehouses across the country. Christian Smalls has done a tour on all the mainstream media, even on Fox News, which some liberals were criticizing him for. No, he's using he's using the media to to basically just talk about the need to unionization for unionization. Uh, and he's, he's attacking Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And, and, and if you're a poor worker and you're what, you're one of those 80% of people that support unions uh, and you're, I mean, Jesus Christ. So the, the political element and the overall, it's also not just a rank and fall campaign. It's an inspiring campaign. There's, <clears throat> there's, there's this feeling of it's us against them and we can, we have to fight. <laughs> uh, and I think that it really, is completely different when we compare it to the way that a lot of union campaigns are run. It seems like this, almost they're trying to be reasonable of some of the campaigns in, I've seen in Canada and they fail. Workers don't put themselves on the line, their, their jobs on the line, their livelihoods on the line for something reason, for something that isn't going to be a fundamental change. As an example of that, a couple of days ago, uh, first Amazon st- or sorry, first Apple store unionized, you know what they're demanding? $30 an hour. That is not a weak, reasonable demand. <laughs> that That's is something so- worth fighting for. Exactly. That is something that you can sink your teeth in. That is something that will transform your life <laughs> as a working class person. That is something worth risking your job over. Because if you win it, it is a fundamental change. It's not this, oh, we'll ask for a 2% wage increase, which won't keep pace with inflation, which we've already mentioned a bit is upward almost 7% now. But yeah, this is uh, really this, the overall theme of these campaigns is, is a fundamental class struggle change to your life. You know, we unite together to fight these, these bastards uh, and challenge it. And I think it's only a matter of time before that spreads to Canada. Um, yeah, I don't know, Alex, do you have anything to say about that? You're trying to come in here. I feel like I'm monopolizing the time, but yeah. All right. Yeah, good stuff to say. So, yes, exactly. The Canadian labor movement is behind the American labor movement on this. We could be very uh, explicit on that. And yeah, we had our show about the crisis in the Canadian labor movement, the corruption in, in Unifor and, and, and other unions, and the extreme moderation and how the Canadian labor movement sets themselves out up as a mediator between the bosses and the workers rather than the unions must be the democratic representatives and advocates for the workers unapologetically and that is what is lacking from the canadian labor movement and and it and also top-down bureaucratic control as opposed to bottom-up workers democratic control right with Workers' democratic control, you unleash the creativity and the power of working class people. These bureaucrats think that workers are stupid and lazy and won't fight, whereas we see in America with Amazon workers, with Chris Smalls, people like that, people are willing to fight and are willing to call out the bosses. And that's what we need. There needs to be a mass political campaign that accuses the capitalist class unapologetically, right? None of this moderation. Uh, in fact, so yes, we, we've criticized uh, capitulating to back to work legislation, accepting binding arbitration, putting forward under inflation uh, wage demands. Well, incre- it's starting to, it, workers in Canada are starting to catch up. There's actually been a number, there's been a small number of strikes. Actually, just uh, uh, yesterday started a strike at Union Station, the, the electricians and maintenance workers. Uh, we were down there. And, and there's also, I think we were at the, uh, were we at the Molson strike in Montreal? Our comrade yeah, there? yesterday, I believe. Yep, yesterday. And, and there's also uh, Rolls-Royce workers in Quebec. Um, so, and, and this is about inflation. Yes, yeah, 6.7%. That came out yesterday as well. And even higher for food and housing and gas, the things that working class people spend money on. So this pressure is coming, but the labor movement hasn't yet caught up and but it, the workers will blow this asunder the workers will inevitably blow this asunder and they will do so far far quicker with revolutionary organization because organization matters advocacy matters education matters that's why we do this podcast that's why we published fight back that's why we're part of the international marxist tendency right this stuff matters. And actually there is an inspiring initiative that is just being launched that we are a part of, 
the picket lines mean do not cross campaign, right? And that's actually having its launch meeting on this Saturday in Toronto, Saturday, April 23rd, 5 p.m. at the Cecil Community Centre. If you want to get more details, go to our website, marxist.ca, and or go to our Facebook page or social media. Uh, there's stuff there. Or if you can't find it, drop us a line. You know, fight back at marxist.ca. We'll give you all the details. And and this is you know, with increasing inflation, there's going to be more strikes and lockouts. Absolutely guaranteed. It's already starting. And, and what we need is a militant statement that a picket line means do not cross. And, and lots of people are coming on board. Uh, it's, it's not just Marxist. It's, it's, it's a movement across the, the labor movement to, to educate both trade unions, trade unionists, and the general public to respect picket lines. You've got to respect picket lines because that's everything that we're all, everything that's been gained in the past period was on the basis of workers fighting and struggling for it. All of the you know, unions themselves used to be illegal. Unions used, to, if you joined a union, you could be imprisoned for joining a conspiracy to raise wages. That was what was in the 19th century. And so it was struggles to sort of defy those unjust laws. Uh, Toll Puddle Martyrs in Britain is also a sort of seminal struggle. They, jo- they formed a union and they were sent to uh, Van Diemen's Land, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand. And, uh, but those str- that caused a mass movement. People defied those unjust laws and created all of the rights that workers enjoy today, which are not enough, but they're more than nothing. But if we're not willing to struggle for them, we're going to go backwards and there needs to be collective solidarity. We need to build that education. So really encourage everybody, join this campaign, get on board. We wanna uh, p- promote this within the labor movement and in the general public, promote the best practices of supporting picket lines, form a flying squad to, to support workers in struggle like we've done in Montreal, like we did in Toronto yesterday, right? Jump on board, marxist.ca, you can get all the info. And, and it's the launch meeting is this Saturday. And if you don't, and if you, if you listen to this podcast after Saturday, it's all right. It's, 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 a, it's a lengthy campaign. I think there will be more picket lines. I'm pretty certain of that. Uh, so you can jump on board of the campaign, even if you miss the launch. Cool. Yeah, I think that transitions nicely into this. Um, we, that's a big takeaway from what's happened in America is rank and file activity. So we are rank and file workers uh, and we want to organize rank and file workers. And uh, yeah, the picket lines mean do not cross campaign is an initiative that we are involved in. And uh, like Alex said, it's being launched uh, in a couple of days on Saturday in Toronto. And I hope to see you there. I will be there. Um, <clears throat> we will. Uh, yeah. And, and really, this is something for everybody to be involved in. Picket lines are an essential component of the class struggle and they are continually and more and more being violated uh, by the bosses, by the state, uh, with back-to-work legislation, with scabs, with all sorts of things. And some of that, unfortunately, is being accepted by union bureaucracies from time to time, the scabbing. And, the, and there is a de facto acceptance of back-to-work legislation. Anyway, so yes, we need to build a rank-and-file militant movement <clears throat> that defends the, the pick, defends picket lines and that that defends the concept that picket lines mean do not cross. Um, yeah, and I encourage you to join us this Saturday. Um, and I, as Alex said, you can go to our website and get all the information for that. Um, but yeah, we we uh, yeah we really need to build that uh, movement in Canada. Um, yeah, so I mean, we've just to wrap it up here. Uh, yeah, we we. Uh, we are rank and file workers. We are Marxists. We are fighting for socialism in Canada. There is an inspiring wave that is an uh, inspiring movement, really, of working class people. There's a shift in consciousness that we can quite clearly see in America. I think there is sometimes there's this thing on the left where people get cynical and depressed about it. There is nothing to be depressed about. <laughs> there is everything to be optimistic about. Let's have, and this is central to Marxism, let's have a long view of history. It's not all amazing movement and revolution and class struggle all the time. There are ups and downs. There are lulls. Uh, actually, in periods of lull, like we are 
you know, you're seeing a few small strikes, as Alex mentioned, but generally speaking, there's not that much going on in the movement in Canada. But mark my words, there will be, we'll have more than enough things to do. But in this moment is now a time to prepare ourselves, yes, and to help build that movement with the picket lines campaign, uh, with, with, with many other things that we're doing, with a general study of Marxist theory, with the history of class struggle. And that is what Fight Back is all about. It's preparing for revolution. The podcast is called uh, This Week in the Canadian Revolution, but that is the whole point. (laughs) So I encourage you, if you like this podcast, if you like what you hear, uh, please contact us, get involved, subscribe to our paper. And and more important than subscribing to our paper is get involved in the fight for socialism. Help us spread these ideas and spread the idea that we need a revolution. We need class struggle methods in the labor movement. yeah, we need to fight to revive uh, those traditions. Uh, yeah, so please join us, join Fight Back, join La Riposte Socialiste, and join the international Marxist tendency in the fight for socialism in our lifetime. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week. So we hope that you tune in again.